Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, I'm back again this week with another podcast. This week I'm going to be interviewing Paul Exner. Paul was recommended as a possible candidate for an interview from Matt Young, one of our listeners. Paul has been on other podcasts, including 59 North, and let's see, what's the name of that now? They changed the name on that. But anyway, he's been on that podcast, and uh, Matt suggested I contact him. I tried to contact... Paul, oh, over a year ago, I think, but I never heard back from him. But he's got a story to tell, and we will get to that in a bit. This summer before I got on the boat, I flew over to France direct from Salt Lake. I caught a flight direct from Salt Lake to, to Paris, and I decided to hang around France for a few days, get over some of the jet lag. So I spent a few, few days traveling in France. I stayed at an Airbnb just before I flew out the next day from Orly uh, to Dubrovnik. And then when I flew into Dubrovnik, my friend Roger was right there at the airport waiting for me. He had arrived a few hours earlier and decided just to stick around and go out to the boat with me because he wasn't sure of the buses to catch to get to the marina. But one other thing I wanted to talk about, one other problem I had on the boat, well, I should say a couple problems I had on the boat. I'll just go through the first one. We were motoring south from uh, Savtat, heading towards Montenegro. And we had the engine about 2,600 RPM, and it overheated. First time it's overheated in a long time. So we stopped the engine. It was There was no wind. Like I said, there was really not much wind this summer. So we stopped the engine and bobbed around for a while, waiting for the engine to cool down. And we started the engine up again and, and ran it at a lower RPM. And the rest of the summer, I did not run it at faster than 2,500 RPM. I could not figure out what the cause of the overheating was. But I noticed in my engine pan that every day there was a little bit of diesel fuel in the engine pan and a little bit of oil in the engine pan. And one morning, I could not get the motor started. I kept uh, cranking it and cranking it and cranking it. It sounded like it was not getting any fuel. And so I went down below into the engine compartment and went to the, um, the, the fuel lifter valve where you can manually pump fuel up to uh, bleed the system. It's a Yanmar 3 GM30F engine. And I, so I pumped that a few times and then went up above and uh, the engine started immediately. So once we got into port, I went down and took a look at it. And I've got a little bulb that I can uh, push fuel from the tank up to the fuel filter. My, my system is like this. It goes from the tank up to a fuel filter and then from the fuel filter down to the uh, the lifting pump or the fuel pump on the engine and from the fuel pump on the engine then it goes into the primary or the engine fuel filter and then into the injector pumps. And so I was putting some, uh, I was, I went down there and I did the uh, manual pump on the fuel lifter pump and watched it and I was getting leaks around, around it. So that's something I'm going to have to fix next year. I think the, uh, the rubber diaphragm on that lifter 
fuel lifter um, pump has worn out. Did some research on that, and that's not uncommon for that to occur. I tried to find a gasket for it. I, I've, I actually have a full spare fuel lifter pump on the boat, which I've had since I put the boat in the water. It's one of the spare parts I've had all along. But I don't have the gasket for it, so I couldn't replace it this year. I could have made my own gasket, but I decided I'd just work my way through this summer and, uh, and fix it next year. So that's one of my projects for next year to fix. When I got into the marina at the end of the season, I took my fuel lifter pump into uh, what used to be the mechanic in the marina. And it turns out the mechanic is no longer there. It's, uh, it's being used by Sunsail. Sunsail took over the space. And they have a, a spare parts shop there. And I walked in and I said, do you have a gasket for this? And he looked at it and he said, ah, off a Yanmar 3 GM30, huh? <laughs> and I said, yes. He said, yeah. Yeah, well, we all have always had problems with the leaking on those. That engine vibrates so much. Every time we send a boat out on a charter, we go down and retighten the fuel lines to that fuel pump. And I've never, I'd never had a problem like that before. So this is the first information I'd get. But that was from the charter company. And they had oh, you know, lots of boats where they're dealing with this all the time. So that's something I need to watch for next year. Now, Roger and I were talking about my overheating problem. Roger made the comment that if you're running lean on fuel, that would tend to overheat the engine. But my gut feel is my mixing elbow needs to be replaced. It's been... Oh, four or five years since I've replaced my mixing elbow. And that's one of the uh, things I'm going to be buying for the boat next year is a new mixing elbow. Anyway, I do not have any listener questions, but I did get another email from another listener, Dave Jevons, who suggested that I contact uh, Blue Water Sailing School and the BVIs. He went on an intensive week course for the ASA 103 101, 103, 104, and 114, and he had a good experience with them, so I've reached out to them. I'm waiting to hear back from them, and if I can get a hold of them, we will do an interview. This show is sponsored in part by Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping self-sufficient sailors with tools, supplies, and knowledge they need to sew for their boats. This second-generation family business is also the maker of the Sailrite Ultrafeed sewing machine. The Ultrafeed is a portable, heavy-duty sewing machine that was designed to handle all your maritime sewing projects from sails to covers. At Sailrite, you'll find everything you need to take on your next do-it-yourself project, including fabric, tools, hardware, and even hundreds of free how-to video tutorials. Start your next project at sailrite.com. That's S-A-I-L-R-I-T-E dot com. I got an email from Scott. Scott wrote, hey, Franz, just listening to your latest podcast. How do I get on your email list to go sailing with you? Thanks, Scott. I've said this before. Here's my priority in crew members for the summer, and I'm usually gone for about two months. This year was just a month. But first priority is family. Family gets to take whatever time they want on the boat. Next is my paying clients. I'm a registered investment advisor, and my clients that pay my, my fees are the ones that come next. And after that, it would be 
uh, friends and potential new friends. So that's where you would fall if you were interested in sailing with me in the summer. This is what I want from you. If you want to be on my list, I need uh, a couple photographs of yourself, a resume telling me what you do, your age, your profession, your sailing experience. I really don't care if you have any sailing experience because I like to create memories and I can handle the boat myself. I'm not really that worried about your sailing experience. So sailing experience is not that important, but I do like to know a little bit about the people I'm going to be inviting. Remember, I'm giving you a gift. I'm no, I don't charge for the time on the boat, but I do expect you to share in expenses on the boat, which would include fuel, port fees, custom fees. And I sort of expect you to buy me a meal once in a while. Not every meal, but, you know, if we're going out to dinner, you might pick up the check once in a while. If you're not willing to do that, if you don't have the budget that can afford that, then you're probably not the right crew member for my boat. Remember, I spend a lot of money maintaining this boat every year, and you're getting it, uh, you're getting on the boat without any, <laughs> without any charge. You're not paying me anything for the experience except for sharing in expenses. So that's how you get on my email list. So send me that if you have an interest, send me that information, and also put a tickler in your file to resend that same information to me in uh, the middle of January, 1st of February, because that's when I start laying out the crew list for the summer sailing season. All right, with that out of the way, let's get on to the interview with Paul. I'm on Skype with Paul Exner. Is it Exner? Yes, Exner. Exner, E-X-N-E-R. All right, Paul, you wrote me back, because I think I wrote you about a year ago, and I never heard back from you, but apparently you've had some uh, exciting times in the last, last year or so. Didn't, did you have a, a boat or uh, a home that got destroyed in the hurricane last year in the British Virgin Islands? Yeah. Unfortunately, I've been on the run since uh, December 6th of 2017, uh, which is just about a year and a week ago from today. Uh, when we were living on Tortola in the British Virgin Islands, when Hurricane Irma had a direct hit, we were actually in the eye of the hurricane for about 52 minutes on the north shore of Tortola in the BVI. And uh, that hurricane had uh, broke a lot of records for strength, and it wound up doing a lot of damage to the, uh, to the Virgin Islands and our home. The home we were living in at the time was uh, pretty much destroyed, uh, there wasn't any doors or windows left and no guttering to receive uh, rainwater because we were living on cistern out there. No city water come to the house. And uh, ever since then, we've been on the run. Uh, we never had to spend a night in the Red Cross tent. We were very fortunate for that. Uh, but we made a large move of the entire family to the big island of Hawaii uh, from, from the BVI. We had to rebuild our sailboat. Uh, solstice which was in nanny key on the island of tortola uh, during the storm uh, she suffered some damage we rebuilt the boat launched it and then sailed 7,000 miles through the panama canal to get uh, to get to the big island of hawaii we've been here now about three months and just putting the pieces together uh, of our life which includes you know the rebuilding of the modern geographic uh, sailing expedition business 
which we're going to run now here in the Hawaiian Islands that we used to run in the Caribbean. Give us a rundown of your background and how did you get into sailing and uh, how long have you been sailing and where have you gone and so forth? Well, that's a really fun question to answer, I guess, uh, because (laughs) I love talking about sailing. It's my number one passion. I've been sailing since I was 10 years old. Uh, I'm 52 years old now. So I guess that's uh, four decades and two years I've been sailing. And it's uh, been a pretty pretty active passion for me. I've never, ever looked back from the day I started sailing. I learned how to sail on uh, Puerto Rico, actually, on the north shore of Puerto Rico. Learned how to sail on Hobie Cats. We sailed Beach Cats right off the North Shore Beach. And we had a pretty good Hobie squad back in the 70s there in Isla Verde, Puerto Rico. I learned to sail with some pretty good guys like Kike Figueroa, who has more Hobie 16 World Championships and National Championships to his name than any other person. He was one of the regular guys we sailed against. And Pedrin Colon and Alfredo Figueroa and a whole bunch of guys. So learned how to sail beach cats there in Puerto Rico and also had a background in water sports like surfing and scuba diving and snorkeling and just generally around in the water all the time. Uh, so with a passion found for sailboats uh, beginning in the in Puerto Rico from a young age, starting at age 10 there, um, it never left me. Um, I dreamed about sailing around the world uh, in with my own boat when I was like, you know, 12 years old. And that's been a passion of mine, drawing boats and designing boats as a kid when I was living in Puerto Rico the whole time. And uh, I eventually built the boat that I'm standing aboard right now based on the, the premise of my designs uh, from way back then. Uh, but then after Puerto Rico, I moved to Annapolis, Maryland. My father was transferred up there for work and we continued sailing competitively in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, having a really good time with a, you know doing family cruising around the area. And it was a, a great experience being able to sail in the Chesapeake, uh, being surrounded with all of that nautical history and competitive sailing that existed there. In fact, my first semester of college, I went to Anne Arundel Community College because in right there in Annapolis. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life, so I just signed up for it take some courses at a two-year college and wound up sailing at the sailing team there. Uh, And we were fortunate enough that we got to practice sailing uh, under Gary Bodie at the United States Naval Academy because the uh, head of athletics for the Anne Arundel Community College was friends with those guys. So we wound up, uh, after after classes were over at the community college, being able to go down and get some first-rate coaching in in lasers and uh, other boats, uh, like the Shields, wooden sloop designs and 420s and all that. and uh, So that was really good training. I was to return to Annapolis later to do some sailing, but after Annapolis, I moved to Wisconsin, of all places. I was actually born in Wisconsin. I was born in uh, 1966 in the north woods of, uh, of, of Wisconsin. And um, much like Harry Houdini, I kind of, uh, you know, was a... a Although Harry Houdini wasn't from Wisconsin, I can relate to him quite a bit because he was kind of this magician guy doing these fantastic tricks and things. And uh, uh, his his spice for life always kind of drove me. I've always been a fan of Harry Houdini, and growing up in in that in those parts uh, was was kind of a kind of a neat draw for me because uh, because of him uh, being like diving under the ice water and trying to do these amazing tricks of escape and. All of that, and in some ways, 
um, I was trying to escape from Wisconsin at that same time um, because after Maryland, I moved to Wisconsin and I enjoyed my time there quite a bit. In fact, the boat I'm on right now, I built in, in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, but I was always trying to escape there and get back to the ocean as well. Uh, it, at my time in Madison, I spent 10 and a half years building this boat, Solstice, that I built from a bare hull with my own hands. And um, a, I sailed on competitively on the University of Wisconsin sailing team at Madison. I eventually went on to coach that sailing team. Uh, and But the ocean was always calling to me. And building this boat that I'm aboard right now uh, was something that uh, this boat was going to be my vehicle, my escape, my Harry Houdini to leave from Wisconsin and head out into the ocean and return to my roots in Puerto Rico, which I eventually did after completing the boat uh, in Madison. After 10 and a half years of building the boat there, um, I worked various jobs to to support building the boat. I'm not independently wealthy at all. Sometimes I'd have uh, two jobs or three jobs at the exact same time just to be able to afford um, the, the materials that I was purchasing to build this boat. I did various things like... Um, I worked for a company called Nikolai Instruments where we sold FTIR spectrometers. I worked in a company doing uh, groundwater modeling uh, that would uh, basically it, it was computer hydrodynamic modeling. Um, did various things in Madison um, it, to help pay for the boat and, and complete the boat. But then eventually I did my magic act and I put the boat on a truck left from Chicago because I, I launched this boat in 2002, sailed it around Lake Michigan for a couple of years, but then I eventually put the boat on a truck in Chicago and trucked it to Charleston, South Carolina, jumped on the boat with a buddy of mine named Joe Reese, and we sailed it down to Puerto Rico, which really was kind of my grand finale as a kid, was to have dreamed about building my own boat and completing it and then making this epic journey to sail down uh, to Puerto Rico, and we kind of completed that aspect of it. Uh, by sailing through the gun sights of Fort El Morro after some 10, 10 days at sea. Uh, and then from there, I began the modern geographic sailing business, which I still run today, where I teach ocean sailing and blue water sailing to people that are really looking to have serious hands-on and cr contributory uh, experience with that. So uh, I've been sailing in the Caribbean for quite a while until we got hammered by Hurricane Irma, and then I just told you a few minutes ago here that from Irma, we sailed the boat through the Panama Canal to get to Hawaii. And I've been here about three months. And I know I've left out a whole bunch of other things about my background, <laughs> but including working for sailmakers and all kinds of other stuff. But I wanted to sum it up as quick as I could. <laughs> well, that, that, that leads to lots of other questions along the way. So, so you built your own boat. And I was just looking. I'm on your website, which is moderngeographic.com. And I'm looking at uh, your blog and about the boat. And so you built it from a bare hull, just like I built my... Well, I, bu I built my boat from a Holland deck. Did you build your deck yourself, or did you buy the deck with the boat when you bought it? Uh, this boat, uh, the deck is made of wood. They don't have a, a hull or a deck mold for it. So it comes with the hull, and then the deck is actually made of wooden deck beams uh, with marine plywood set on top and then sheathed in glass. So I actually built that deck, um, but from from the from the bare hull. That's cool. You built uh, built a boat from hull and deck. That sounds awesome. 
Well, yeah, I, I, I built a uh, Bristol Channel Cutter, a Lyle Hess designed Bristol Channel Cutter from Sam Moore's company in California. But uh, I took about five years to finish my boat off. You took 10 years, but you had to build the deck. So that's a, that's a big project to build the deck. Did you have any of the bulkheads installed when you took delivery of it? Because sometimes it's hard to ship those hulls without some bulkheads installed. Yeah, we had, um, I had four bulkheads installed. Uh, the main bulkhead where the um, cutout goes to move between the main saloon and the forward area of the boat. And then the forward bulkhead where the ank- that holds the anchor up there. Uh, two midship bulkheads, which uh, kind of separate the galley from the main living area of the boat. And then a stern bulkhead. I also had ballast partitions installed and two longitudinals to give the hull some stiffness. And I actually drove out to Port Townsend and picked up uh, the hull with a friend of mine and drove it back myself on a on a trailer. <laughs> but that leads me to something you and I have quite a bit in common because Todd Ecker of Cape George Marine Works is now building the Bristol Channel Cutter. Oh, really? So is that where the molds ended up going? Yeah, that's where the molds are right now. In fact, I saw their first production, if you call it production, <laughs> their first custom um, uh, Bristol Channel cutter there, the, the 28 coming off coming off the line. And what a magnificent boat they're building. Yeah, somebody bought those molds and gave them to Todd to build with like a nominal fee uh, for every hull that was built uh, just because he wanted the design to continue being being produced yeah, so they're in port, port townsend washington now oh that's great yeah my hull is number 71 out of that mold cool that's awesome where's your boat now it's in dubrovnik croatia right now wow that sounds awesome yeah so so your boat is t- 31 feet in length how many do you accommodate on the boat so uh, it can accommodate four people sleeping below decks. Okay. Um, I've taken as many as myself and four others, and those, and I've done that twice. And those have been a scenario where the four individuals knew each other extremely well. <laughs> uh, uh, so when I'm leading the sailing expeditions on this boat, the ideal quantity of people would be myself and two others. That way we all have a bunk to sleep below um, and also, I think it's a benefit because the people that are coming sailing have much more hands-on time with just being me and two others. So basically, our boats are very close to the same size. Mine's 28 feet on deck, 37 feet overall. And I like to go with uh, two people, too. I don't like to have it more than... I like three people on the boat because it's nice for conversation. Uh, two people is, is is okay. But I, just like you, I like uh, I like the three people me and two others so it seems like uh that's a good number for for our size boats i think yeah and it's interesting you mentioned that about the dynamic of the conversation because i've noticed that as well sometimes when you have more people on a boat uh it's it it, it kind of breaks things up you go from three people to four and the the dynamics of the conversation grow uh immensely and that one little number it's interesting you mentioned that i've experienced that as well uh, but when you have physical limitations on our boats, uh, the it actually works better on, on this Cape George 31 to have myself in two, because almost myself in three, unless they know each other really well, it gets a bit crowded. Yeah, yeah, I've had I've had up to seven people on my boat, mm. and it was well, it was my mother, my father, my 
my, well, my wife, my two daughters who were very young at the time. I think they were uh, s- seven or eight years old at the time. And then a babysitter. And that was uh, unbearable. I never want to do that again. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That sounds like that sounds like that would be an interesting time for sure. I know yeah. going same with my family too. Things, um, you know, I love my family, taking my family out on the boat. But sometimes things can go hectic, especially with kids on home when they're not used to being on boats at the same time. So let me ask you a question: Did you own the house that you were living in in uh, in Tortola, or were you renting we, it? We were renting it. Yeah. Okay, so you just walk away. You didn't have to worry about that. You just. Uh, Fixed your boat and headed off then. Fortunately, in that regard, yeah, repairing the boat was was fine. Had we uh, been forced to deal with the house like many of our friends uh, who owned houses there, um, it would have been a different story for us because there wasn't much of a market for those houses afterward unless you wanted to take a huge uh, cut in uh, value. Yeah, what damage did your boat have? Uh, she. Um, I was fortunate, I must preface, by saying... I had removed the mast before the storm and had stored it that way because I had intended to paint the mast. So she was sitting on land with jack stands and chains between the jack stands at the Nanny Key boatyard, uh, and uh, she was without her mast. However, most of the boats that were around me, I'd say 99% of them, all had their masts up, and that storm caused almost... <laughs> It, I don't know if you've seen the photos of Nanny Key, but it was just total devastation there. Um, there was a mast of a Sun Odyssey 503, I think it was, that fell across the deck of Solstice, my boat. But because the mast was off, it didn't entangle that and cause any further damage. But that mast laid on, hit the, the lifeline system. The lifeline system, consisting of stanchions and pulpits and uh, upper and lower lifeline, is above the cabin house in height so when the rig of that sun odyssey fell on her it it entangled the 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 running or not the running ring but it entangled the lifeline system absorbed the blow before crushing the cabin house and as a result the mass just kissed the the cabin house but basically destroyed my pulpits and lifelines and everything so The, I had to rebuild that system, um, and that wasn't cheap. It sounds like that'd be cheap, but it wasn't. And the other damage I suffered was uh, uh, a, a boat that was on jack stands behind me fell astern of me and crushed my wind vane off the back. I had a monitor wind vane, uh, which I've replaced now, brand new, um, but that was destroyed as well. Um, those were the two major damages to the to the boat, and that's the summation of of finances to repair that was was not simple <laughs> it added up to quite a bit actually because it especially because the i have a cap rail a wooden cap rail of teak wrapping over the, the transom there and uh that had to be the old one had to be chopped out a new one had to be made on a mold and then it had to be scarfed in place and that was not cheap in and of itself uh, and it blew apart because the stern pulpit the way it had installed on those on that uh cap rail the stern cap rail that helped absorb some of the impact by basically destroying that cap rail as the as the stern pulpit you know lifted when that mast hit the boat. Hmm. I'm just uh, looking, just uh, cruising around on your website while you're talking, and uh, I'm seeing where you are right now, looking at this little marina here, and uh, 
<laughs> I guess that's right where you're at, right there, then. Huh? Yeah. yeah, I'm. I'm physically at that location. Uh, I'm on the boat right now, just because it's kind of cool uh, to be doing the interview that way. Uh, and the name of this harbor is called Hono Kohau Harbor, and it is in Kailua, Kona, Hawaii. It's on the west coast of the Big Island of of Hawaii. All right, you've got this, the pronunciation of those Hawaiian words down well. It looks like because I look at that and I say, ah, okay, how do I pronounce that? But you've got it down. So, so did when, when I gotta go back to your boat uh, damage? Did you have insurance on your boat, and did insurance pay for any of it? I had insurance on the boat, and it eventually paid for it. Uh, that was a very, very trying, trying time uh, to get the the insurance to pay for for it. I think the industry of insurance was under a tremendous uh, strain after Irma because everybody had claims, um, and I imagine. You know, that was just in the, mar- uh, the marine underwriters. Um, but it, it was not an easy situation. Uh, that was, uh, boy, that created a lot of stress trying to get money that I, to rebuild the boat and to get to Hawaii, I had to spend all my own money. The insurance didn't come through until uh, basically, I think, the day before the policy ended. And I couldn't figure out why they were waiting to pay out like that. Um, but, uh, that's what it took. Uh, they, I had asked them to renew my policy, uh, be, and include the business operation in Hawaii, which was required, uh, to get the permits to operate here because you need, um, basically commercial operation permits to operate uh, any type of charter business in the islands here. And it requires insurance. I couldn't get a proper policy out of those guys. And we were going back and forth, like, give me my money. No renew first. Uh, a lot of games. So I wound up having to go with another insurance company, paying them outright just so I could get my permits. And eventually, the day before my policy ran out, I got a settlement. Uh, and uh, it, it, I wound up paying more to repair the boat than what the insurance gave me, just the way everything uh, mm-hmm. sorted out. But what a mess that was. There weren't enough people to give quotes for damaged boats in, in the Virgin Islands. Um, you know, uh, Qualified people to do a proper assessment for the companies. Oh, what a situation that was. We were, I must add, Franz, that this boat solstice, and through our hard work, we were the first boat, this is a fact, the first boat to leave the island of Tortola after Hurricane Irma and go blue water sailing. And that wasn't something that we wanted. We didn't want a medal for it, but it was a fact because to get to Hawaii, we were racing hurricane season in the eastern Pacific. So we had a deadline to get the boat launched, to get through the Panama Canal so we could get here without encountering another hurricane. And uh, I did all that on my own penny, and the insurance company, as I said, finally came through with a little bit at the end. Hmm. What insurance company did you use? Boy, I, I'm not going to mention. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All what? I can say to anyone buying insurance is um, um, it's a... Uh, it's a very difficult to know if you're buying the insurance from the right company or not. Um, and the only advice I have is, I guess, is to ask the hard questions up front about what you will do in, in these claims and see if you can get statistics about average duration of payouts. And also read very carefully how uh, how the settlement will work in a named storm and uh, what happens if you do your own work. Um, because if you do your own work, oftentimes they don't give you any money for that. I had to have a, a special uh, dispensation made 
because I built this boat to allow me to to make the repairs. In the end, the company said uh, that um, they had probably saved themselves a lot of money because I rebuilt the boat um, myself, and uh, I certainly did not try to take advantage of the situation. I only listed those things that I actually incurred as costs in rebuilding the boat. Uh, so I sure hope uh, people are able to get good companies in the future because I know they do exist out there. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually like to throw this out to our listeners. Anybody that's had experience with insurance companies, let's uh, let's have a conversation because my insurance company I've always, well, I've used for the last oh, six or seven years, Pantaneous uh, out, of, uh, out of Europe, uh, informed me that they wouldn't renew my insurance this year because in insurance you're supposed to be licensed in the in the state where you're selling insurance and i don't think they were licensed in in utah and i don't think there's very many uh, marine insurance companies that are licensed in utah so i've got to search around for a new insurance company this year and they suggested i contacted their their u.s headquarters but uh, so I'm, I'm, that's why I'm asking about insurance. Maybe offline I'll talk to you a little further, but we won't, won't put it on the podcast. So, Sure, and I'll, I'll be happy to give you the name of my new insurer, uh, okay. who's, who's wound up to be wonderful. Who is um, that? So I went through, um, and if you give him a ring, mention that you talked to me. Mm-hmm. I went through an outfit out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, and there it's the company called, uh, it, it's, You'll have to Google R.S. Hammerschlag. He has now partnered with another another uh, person, um, and I don't know the name of the first. Uh, I don't know the name of the first pr- um, partner in the business. But if you Google R.S. Hammerschlag, you'll find them. All right. How do you and, spell Hammerschlag? <laughs> mm, let me see here. See if I can get that right. H a m e r s c h L-A-G, I okay. think, Hammer Schlag. All right, yeah. I never would have gotten that, so that's good you spelled it <laughs> out. <for> <laughs> they have been uh, wonderful, extremely responsive um, in, um, in communicating with me. Every time I need to update the policy for hauling the boat out and have a, another added insured to uh, help me with you know the, the crane lift out or anything, they've been very, very helpful, which I've had to do here in Hawaii already. Uh, the policy, I had to get commercial insurance uh to to operate the boat here in hawaii so i have a commercial policy um it wasn't it was actually cost more than my old policy by oh maybe 25 percent more but um as far as i can tell right now they seem to be excellent hmm. well you will never know till you have a claim that's how you determine if they're good or bad <laughs> i know it's terrible <laughs> all right tell me about i'm looking at your website what is your association with 59 north Ah, Andy Shell, Mia Carlson, uh, they've been friends of mine for a long time. So before they got into, before they even owned Eastbjorn, the Swan 48, they were working in the World Cruising Club. And Andy met me at the Chicago Boat Show many years ago. And we, he interviewed me on one of his podcasts when the podcast was uh, Two Inspired Guys before he even had On the Wind. And immediately after he interviewed me and I went back to the Caribbean after the show, he called me up to uh, uh, to get me to start doing sailing expeditions on some of uh, his clients' boats, some of the, the contacts that he had. And that's another aspect of the business I do. I will do very, very specific um, sea trial-like 
uh, expeditions. I'm aboard my clients' boats, uh, and we run through an intensive checklist uh, to to be able to make sure that the boat is ready to go to sea, as well as uh, improve the client's uh, boat owner's uh, confidence in operating the boat and the systems that are aboard. I've sailed many, many different kinds of boats, hundreds of different designs of boats. So I'm pretty good at stepping aboard and having the personality to uh, to be able to help work aboard other people's boats. Um, but I should mention that that in in and so Andy got me hooked up with sailing aboard some of his clients' boats. Um, that he was he for whatever reason he just handed them off to me, and uh, and then we continued on. And then I did some presentations for Andy um, at the World Cruising Club uh, seminar in Annapolis as part of their ocean uh, o- ocean voyaging series, which essentially was a way for for people to get excited about the Caribbean 1500 that sailed from uh, Norfolk down to Tortola, uh, which happens in November. So I did some uh, presentations uh, for the World Cruising Club through Andy there. And then eventually on one of those presentations, I went and I helped Andy and Mia see Eastpion for the very first time. I went when they went out with us to do uh, the sea trial uh, on the engine some very, very cold November day up in Connecticut, I think it was. Uh, and then since then, I've, I've skippered Eastbjorn in on various expeditions uh, for Andy and Mia uh, because of they haven't had the availability. In fact, I, th- I did the Caribbean 1500 where I was the skipper and the expedition leader for Andy and Mia on Eastbjorn. Since then, I've done uh, the uh, Caribbean 600 ocean race, which I proposed to them that we kind of get set up and and is a great way of, of adding to their repertoire of expeditions. Um, I'm right now, uh, I, I guess Andy calls me his, uh, his racing skipper um, because I have a, lot, a very extensive racing background uh, where I come out and I have a neat way of getting um, people involved with, you know, the people that have never sailed together before to form a team and to create a bond and be competitive and learn and have fun all at the same time. It's a bit of a knack I have, so they've been bringing me aboard various their various expeditions to kind of set that up, uh, set up and bring that level of camaraderie and education to what they're doing. And I still work with those guys today. We're doing the Caribbean 600, which is a 600-mile ocean race in February, this coming February of 2019, out of Antigua in the West Indies. So I'm going to join that one. Uh, Again with those guys, uh, and uh, that that one's going to be another. That'll be the third one I've done with those guys as the skipper for Eastburn. Uh, but those guys are great. I love them. Well, my friend Neil Fletcher bought their original boat, and mm. it's it's still sitting in uh, Sweden, as far as I know, right now. And I went sailing with them year before last in Sweden. Oh, that's fantastic! I've heard that name many times, Neil Fletcher. I think I've corresponded with him on on. Uh, on uh, messenger oh okay yeah he's a great guy he's uh he's come out and crashed sundance film festival with me out here in salt lake and i've sailed with him on my boat and i've sailed with him on his boat so he was one of my first uh podcast listeners uh he and jack andrews were my first podcast listeners just to come out and go sailing with me so uh i like a great guy it's a, he's got that great british accent and great british sense of humor so, oh, cool. Yeah. That's excellent. Yeah. It's amazing how this connection works, you know? 
how how close tight the how how tight knit the sailing in, industry really is. You know, with you doing a podcast and knowing Andy, and then Neil Fletcher bought, buying Andy's boat. That's that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe it. So let me ask you a question. So so the reason I I reached out to you is because one of my clients said, "Listen, I'd like to find out more about." Uh, how to get sailing experience so that I can go charter a boat myself. And, uh, and tell me about what you do for training new sailors. That's my favorite thing, uh, is, is the coaching aspect. Um, I know how to sail very well, and everyone should believe in what they do. Uh, and, and I would say I'm, I'm an even better coach than I am a sailor. And that's important, because in the end, when you go to learn, learn anything that you're doing especially as an adult um, you only have limited time and you want to be effective in the learning that you have and uh, you want to get a good value uh, or else you do some other opportunity so I think the instruction aspect of it is key there are various things that people would want to do when they come with their sailing after they come sailing with me I'm primarily um, you know a coaching based Although I do have people come out just purely for the adventure, but also want to really improve their confidence or gain more skills. So I use the experiential learning paradigm. I work from an extensive curriculum uh, that I've created. Uh, hundreds of items are on this, this curriculum to, be, to, to learn and, and expand upon. But I use the experiences that as they unfold while we're sailing a given itinerary to share with them um, the knowledge and uh, the expertise of the moment. And that's very effective because if you're just simply going out to tack or jibe that day or hove to or anchor, the student in that type of learning environment learns the skills but does not learn the connectivity of how or why to use them properly. Now, I know there are other methods of teaching routing and that sort of thing, but when you're actually living aboard a route, as, as we do on the solstice and you're learning with me how to apply the seamanship skills, the individual skills in a real world scenario, there is a, uh, a retention that is, is ingrained, uh, in each of the skills, uh, each of the seamanship skills. I look at seamanship, not as being, I, maybe it's a revolutionary way. Maybe it's a newfound way of looking at seamanship, that I'm doing today, but it's not individual skills like holding a hand bearing compass and triangulated course, you know, big deal. But if you can triangulate a position and use it to manage the situation you're in at the time, being okay, a setting a current, uh, we're dragging under anchor, we have a new weather system unfolding, which is going to cause the wind to shift this way. What is our departure exit going to look like out of this anchorage while we're triangulating a fix? And you start to tie together all of those aspects. At first, it seems overwhelming. But because it is actually what we're doing and facing ourselves with, multiple skills are learned at the same time while doing the experience, sometimes under a, a heightened adrenaline period, when, which is when people are really learning and really retaining the information. It is... It is just highly effective. Um, I'd say that sail trimming is just just a simple, simple thing. Um, but to be able to get a boat to sail in harmony with a complex sea state is another matter. And so 
I can teach someone how to trim a sail in about five minutes, and they could probably sail around the world without any problem at all if they learn how to reef and do a few of the other skills. But if you're really looking how to be passionate about it, trimming that sail to create a harmony with the ocean in the way the ocean is moving brings your level of awareness and appreciation for the sport to new heights. And that is what I'm really trying to to share with people. It's not just, okay, how to do... Uh, how to start the engine or how to put it in reverse, but it's when to do those things and how it relates to the goal at hand. Um, I am just so passionate about teaching that way, um, and I get fantastic results for my clients. Uh, The people that come sailing with me, they are walking away from this situation, and many of them are even saying, I think I'm going to change my career. I think I'm going to be a sailor now, or, you know, (laughs) this this type of thing. Uh, And in in that in that realm, I have a high, high degree of sailors that are coming to me who are actually trying to get into the industry. I have a number of people that are, um, you know, changing careers and getting into it, or just practicing it at a very very high level. Uh, and it's exciting to be involved with that. If someone wants to learn how to bareboat charter, there are numerous courses out there and available, and they're all quite effective at providing the certification to go and charter a boat. Okay, having said that, why would you want to come sailing with me if your objective would be to learn how to uh, bear boat charter? Well, I can write a letter of recommendation, even though I can't give you a specific certification as such. But if you're really looking for that confidence that you can show to your family when you're out on that boat, I'm the guy to come with because I will build that confidence and the level of seamanship awareness that you need to really and properly uh, manage the boat. I have many people that have sailing certifications that have come to me afterward because they've said, you know, I've got all these uh, credentials, but I still just don't feel confident. I just don't feel like I know what I'm doing. So I help them put that back together and send them on their way so that they can um, grow as sailors. And as a coach, I'm thrilled when my sailors can beat my expectations or sail better than me. My mark in college Because if I could sail someone to sail better than me or beat me in a race and motivate them to perform well on an international or a national level, I felt I was doing my job. And I think that's the job of a coach. So one of the complaints I've had about the ASA series uh, is what they do is they sell a program to like a charter company as another profit center for them. Because uh, I called him up one time and I said, listen, you know, I, I'd like to be able to take people out with me and uh, get certified as an instructor and then give them a certification. But they said, no, you have to be a school. And I've always felt that that's, uh, you know, that's not the way to do it. I, I, I thought that was uh, a poor way of doing it. They, anybody that can get certified in their program can, can teach, but uh, if you... Uh, or I, who have you know, years and years of sailing experience, we don't, we can't, we cannot give them a certification. What has been your experience when you've written out letters of recommendation to people? Uh, how how have the charter companies responded to that? Uh, positively, I've never had anyone that I've written a letter of recommendation for not been given uh, the keys to a charter boat. So even uh, without the ASA certifications, then without it completely. Okay. Yep, absolutely. Right. Yeah, there is one 
certification in Europe that is a governmental-based certification. I can't remember the name of it, and it's a specific course that you got to have, I think, in the med, which is your expertise, and I don't know anything about that really. That is that, And that's one that you probably want to get the cert for because it's some government-based. But all the rest of them are, um, are, are part of the, 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 the system of just um, – trading dollars for certs really in the end of the day i think that's kind of what the certification business is about and people say well there's still passionate instructors i've heard and and i said before the end of the day your experience for the sailing school comes specifically down to the instructor uh this whole argument well we're going to standardize the curriculum for offering uh sailing classes that's nonsense and and i'm i'm so glad i have this opportunity to say it is nonsense because the moment you have two sailboats in two different locations, you never can create the same conditions. So there's no way of standardizing. And whether you say you tack on this day five times and jibe on that day two times, or how many wraps go on a winch, none of that matters. Because sailing is a management system. It isn't about learning the specific skills as, they've, as they try to teach you in their tests. You're also never going to have the same sailing conditions on any given day or in any location. You might go take a sailing class in San Francisco Bay, for example. Well, you're probably going to have pretty strong breeze on a sea breeze day. And then you go and take it uh, somewhere else, like let's say in um, Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, where you have a high degree of, of light air some, on occasion. The two experiences, even though the exact same certification is given, are entirely different. So it blows the argument out of the water that... The sailing certification is for standardization purposes because it isn't. And sailing is anything but a standard uh, sport. Well, okay, <laughs> you and I agree on that. <laughs> I, and I've always thought, well, there should be uh, there should be another certification that's accepted accepted by the charter companies, which is uh, by people that have the experience like you and I do. Now, I, now you asked me about the med, Mediterranean. I I have a commercial license. I have the master's license. And so I always just hand that to uh, the customs people when I'm coming into a country. But, but they, they do ask for a license whenever you're over there sailing. They're asking for some sort of a license. Now, I guess that's what the ASA is giving them is some sort of a license. But uh, There is a new license out, and I'm sorry I don't have the name of it, but it, it, it amounts to like a two-hour course or something like that. <laughs> probably it's, just it, rules of the road is probably what it is. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm. I've been. I've just been cruising through your passage from Tortola through here. It looks like you stopped maybe four or five times, and that's about it on your crossing to the to Hawaii. Then, yeah, we we did it in. Um, I think it was. Let's see the number we did it in legs. So we went BVI to Panama. That's one leg. Mm -hmm. uh, through the Panama Canal. That's two. We went to. Uh, Balboa, Panama, to Punta Arenas, Costa Rica, that's three. We went from Costa Rica to Acapulco, that's four. We went from Acapulco to Cabo San Lucas, that's five. And Cabo to Hawaii, that's six. So what, so was, the, the, what was the length of the passage from Cabo to Hawaii? How long was that? Cabo to Hawaii, 2,650 miles. So about 20, 25 days then, right? We did it in 18 days, three Whoa, hours. Oh, you were screaming then, huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I always figure as a general rule, a hundred miles a day. That's always what I figure. So you, uh, you did a you did a fast passage then. Well, you know why it was friends because 
we we made that departure beginning two weeks before hurricane season, which is May 15th. May 15th, it begins in the Eastern Pacific. And I wanted plenty of lead time. So I leave 15 days before thinking, hey, no problem. Guess what? We're three days out and this tropical depression forms TD number one in the Eastern Pacific. And that got our attention right away. And uh, National Hurricane Center couldn't pin it down properly. The thing's dancing all over the place. And we're plotting it, you know, when we get our information about the, the center of the storm and its speed and direction and intensity. We're plotting all that while we're going. And it wasn't behaving properly. And at first I almost thought NHC was just sort of writing it off because they said, ah, it's going to be nothing. And then all of a sudden it turned into something. GFS shows the thing, the GFS numerical model shows the thing spinning up into some intensity and basically crossing our path. So I'm like, well, we're out here now and we can't pin down a direction of this thing. And I don't want to be caught anywhere near this low pressure. So we were starting to fly the spinnaker um, night and day, even with three of us on board. Uh, there were times where uh, we would have my client in the cockpit uh, sailing the boat single-handedly with the spinnaker up at night, and I'm sleeping on the leeward side in the cockpit to wake me up at a moment's notice to solve any type of issue to, to provide backup. So we basically put the pedal to the metal because of that tropical depression, and not only were we trying to plot and get out of its way with it meandering all over the Pacific Ocean as it kind of wanders north-northwest, we were just putting miles to get away from it because our only option was just to close the distance on Hawaii. So we wound up with some pretty good speed, and that was our motivation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Paul, we've been talking about an hour now, and I don't like to go on for much more than an hour on a podcast, but just give our listeners a quick overview of what uh, what expeditions you have and, and you have on here on your website, Sailing Expeditions, Hands-On Day Sailing. What uh, what can they expect to pay, and, and what just, just give them a quick you know, thumbnail sketch of what you do and what the costs are. Sure. Um, so thanks for this opportunity, friends. I really appreciate that. Uh, so I'm offering uh, per birth uh, two births on an extended uh, expedition, which could between be between 7 and 12 days of duration. Uh, it'd be $425 per person per day is basically the calculation. Um, that includes all the food and everything aboard the boat. Uh, and all the safety equipment and expert-level coaching, a uh, fully immersed trip. So, for example, seven days works out to be $2,985. Uh, then I do seven-day expeditions, 10-day, and 12-day. The itineraries are all a little bit different. In seven days, we could work uh, the western coast of Hawaii or... We have just enough time to cross the Ali Nui Haha Channel and get up into Maui and potentially Molokai and back to Big Island. Uh, that would be in seven days. With 10 days, there's no, no question that we can cross the Ali Nui Haha. Uh, with 12 days, we could get as far as Kauai, which is about a 250 nautical mile sail up to Kauai. And so that would be a straight shot from Big Island to Kauai. And then we would uh, uh, basically... Uh, review the offshore trips and then work our way back to the big island by hitting some of the other islands like Hawaii, Molokai, Lanai, uh, Lahaina, and, Mo and Maui as a, as a stopover. And, uh, and the sailing around here is, is just, it's amazing. Uh, the big island of Hawaii has two large volcanoes on it. Um, each one of them is over 13,000 feet high. 
Mauna Kea is 13,800. And we have everything from waterfalls to rainforests to desert to um, incredibly challenging sailing conditions, uh, diurnal effects like land breeze, sea breeze to encounter amazing water clarity and marine life. I've seen much more marine life here than I ever saw in the Atlantic. And it's right out the front of the harbor here. Um, so in a nutshell, seven-day, 10-day, 12-day expeditions, about $425 per person per day, including everything. Um, and most importantly, it'd be you know the camaraderie. Uh, it'd be the chance to truly sit in the driver's seat of a boat and learn. And uh, sailing with someone who's passionate, who's been doing it for 42 years and built their own boat and can talk to you about building your own boat, talk to you about your future plans in sailing, anything. I'm a coach, a mentor, and I really want to take people to that next level. Great. Thanks, Paul. Well, that's going to finish up this podcast. If you have any thoughts, comments, or suggestions, write me, franz1 at medsailor.com. And consider becoming a Patreon at patreon backslash meds, patreon.com backslash medsailor. And if you like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes directory. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing.